This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Getting more people out of cars could do a lot to help slow the climate disruption evident everywhere this summer. Transportation is now the leading source of climate pollution in the U.S. And we need to tackle that by creating sustainable travel choices. But how do we do that when we spent decades designing most of our cities for cars? When you are committed to providing a congestion-free driving experience for the least spatially efficient mode of transportation ever invented, this is what you get. And what changes are needed to make public transit work for more people? There's so many places in this country where bus service stops at 6 p.m., doesn't run on the weekend. Um, it runs once an hour. That's not a serious transit system. How can we make public transit work in American cities? Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. The U.S. House of Representatives recently passed a $550 billion measure that would make it harder for states to build new highways and incentivize transit instead. The Invest in America Act would be a big shift away from the highway habit of the last 70 years. Unless you live in a dense urban part of the country, you probably rely on a car to get around. The culture of car dependency feels natural because most of our cities have been built for cars rather than pedestrians, but it wasn't always that way. Peter Norton is associate professor at the University of Virginia and an expert on transportation history. Climate One's Ariana Brocious spoke with him about how America's car culture was actually manufactured and how proponents of autonomous cars are repeating a tried and true sales pitch. I think many of us have a somewhat romanticized view of American car culture, that owning and driving cars is part of the fabric of our identity. But as you explain in your book, Fighting Traffic, cars weren't the default option in the early part of the 20th century. So how did Americans use and perceive streets before the automobile age? Yeah, in a lot of ways, it was sort of the opposite of what we expect today. In other words, Everything but cars was sort of uh, expected and welcome. A street was a space for just about anything provided it wasn't too obnoxious or too dangerous. And by both of those standards, the car, when it was new, when they first started to appear in large numbers, actually seemed to be the thing that was breaking the prevailing social norms. And that is, it was, you know, relatively dangerous and kind of obnoxious to other people. Your book highlights how a lot of residents of American cities actually resisted and protested the dominance of cars. So what were some of those reasons for that? The objections ranged everywhere from, you know, this is an obnoxious nuisance to, you know, this is killing, and it really was, large numbers of people, people who don't even drive. You know, most of the people who were getting injured or killed were people who never drove a car and didn't use a car. And so there was a perception that this was a real inequity. Um, if you were trying to cross the street or trying to get to a streetcar, the streetcars, first of all, they were in practically every city, even small cities. And they were right in the middle of the street. The tracks went right down the center, which meant that to board a streetcar or to get off the streetcar and go to your destination, you were crossing the street just about anywhere. And so it felt not only like a danger and a nuisance, but also like an unfairness. You know, a privileged class is ruining or endangering street use for everyone else. And you talk about this sort of invented concept of jaywalking. Can you explain that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the problem was, as far as most people were concerned, uh, that this newcomer, the intruder, the automobile, was making it harder to use the streets safely. But that way of looking at it kind of limited what cars could ever be in cities. So the people who wanted to sell cars in cities and the people who already owned them and belonged to automobile clubs and the automobile dealers and so on, they had to get together and say, you know what, actually it's normal to drive a car in a city street. And that was a tough claim to make 100 years ago. It was a tough claim to argue that streets are a legitimate place for driving fairly fast. And to make that argument, they had to find a way to challenge people who felt like streets are for walking in. So the people who wanted a future for cars and cities organized, and they put out a message, and the message was, you know what, this is the 20th century, folks. This is the motor age, and you need to get with the times. And if you're not with the times then you're a throwback. You're, you're out of touch. You're out of step with the era. You are a J. Now, the word J doesn't mean very much to us anymore, but 100 years ago, it meant something like rube or hick or hayseed. And it was a way of, you know, putting J together with another word was really common. A J town, for example, was a town with like no theater, no amenities. So uh, a J walker, was like somebody who hadn't kept up with the times, stuck in the 19th century. It was a term of ridicule to try to make people accommodate automobiles instead of resisting them. That's really fascinating. I mean, it sounds a lot like kind of the the more contemporary example of making people feel responsible for their own carbon footprint. And also um, when it comes to things like plastics that we, we have to recycle, it's all us, when in fact, you know, individual decisions aren't necessarily the root of the problem. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Jay Walker story is a nice little micro example of a much bigger strategy of reframing, of reframing so as to normalize things like car dependency and car domination and denormalize everything else. So uh, one of the expressions that says we're a car culture is a, is a uh, little line that sounds like folk wisdom. And the line is that uh, Americans have a love affair with the automobile. And I heard that when I was quite young, and I figured this is just an expression. So I was quite surprised when I learned that that expression was invented by General Motors as a way of promoting the car culture story, the car car culture account, because it's a really wonderful way of sidestepping the issue. Does car dependency make sense? Because it shifts it from from a question about what makes sense to a question about what do we love? And love is not about what makes sense, right? Love is blind. Love will find a way. And if we're a free country, then we defer to what people love. We don't judge it. So we've touched on the role of car companies themselves to market automobiles and this and kind of reframe streets as the place for cars. What's been the role of the federal government in dictating how we design cities and interstate highways, uh, leaning toward this preference of individual cars rather than trains or buses? 
very interesting question. I mean, for one thing, to get the federal government involved at all in anything like roads and streets was a tall order just a hundred years ago, because you know, under the Constitution, uh, road building and maintenance is primarily a state or a local responsibility, and the you know, for a federal government be to be spending federal tax money on a road used to look like a real abuse of federal power. This began with federal responsibility for delivering the mail under the Constitution. That is a federal responsibility. So they could justify some money for major roads that could serve the postal network. But, you know, that doesn't give us the present. For the interstate highways that you mentioned, another federal responsibility they could invoke was defense. And that's a major reason why the interstate highways were framed as a defense measure. And oddly, the the main defense justification offered was that in an era of nuclear war, you need a way to evacuate cities quickly. And we know from hurricanes that, you know, interstate highways have actually done a pretty poor job at, at um, evacuating people from cities. So it's, you know, clearly a failure from that from that point of view. A really big angle, though, to your question um, is how we redefined transportation, mobility, and access. And we did that with the assistance of the automobile companies and related industries who began to work very hard going back to the 1920s and 30s to redefine access as access by car. Uh, in other words, you know, until you have everything accessible by car, it's not accessible. And, you know, perversely, when you make something more accessible by car, you almost inevitably make it less accessible by everything else. Another aspect of that boom of construction was that many freeways were built through communities of color and often destroyed vibrant neighborhoods. So what's the racial legacy of that interstate highway system and the car culture that emerged in post-war America? This is a really horrific, uh, you know, truth that we've been extremely slow to, to face. I mean, it's always been faced by a fraction of the population, but it hasn't been in the mainstream media very much until quite recently. But yeah, the um, you know, even before the interstate highway, as we know them, really began in 56 already, you know, for well over a decade, roads, um, motor thoroughfares had been plowed right through communities of color. And this is sometimes oversimplified as purely a dollars and cents uh, phenomenon. In other words, this is where you could get the the land the cheapest, and therefore, that's where the roots went. Of course, it had everything to do with political power as well. Um, in a really disturbing way, this got paired with a, another federal highway project, uh, Urban Renewal, You know, beginning with the Housing Act of 1949, which offered federal money ostensibly to re, uh, rehabilitate uh, blighted urban districts. Um, really, what you know, what they were calling blighted urban districts, could more accurately be called affordable urban districts, and also could be more accurately called urban districts where people of color could 
get a rental or get a mortgage, which, you know, was not true most places. And in city after city after city, uh, these projects just totally devastated neighborhoods. On paper, urban renewal was supposed to be providing good low-income housing, um, but it's a well-known fact that urban renewal removed more housing stock than it ever replaced. Most of the land that was redeveloped was redeveloped for so-called high-value purposes like convention centers, uh, high-rent apartment buildings, retail, um, civic centers, uh, stadiums, um, and also highways. And so it was a, uh, a real smash and grab. And it went hand in hand with underfunding of tra transit. So at the same time that um, the provision of expressways for suburban commuters who were over overwhelmingly white people was made a federal priority with federal money, uh, transit was reduced to a charity case that you offer a pittance to out of a benevolent interest in the well-being of everyone you've just dehoused. And so these things are connected, the, the degradation of transit, urban renewal, and the expressways and suburbanization, such that, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real systemic abuse of the American city that went on for decades and that we're living in the legacy of today. Yeah. And let's bring that up to today. So what are the incentives that continue to lead cities to invest in more lanes and roadways over transit, over, you know, rehabbing or, or really investing in public transit? Well, I have to go start answering that question by going back a little bit uh, because the, the massive federal highway money that was unleashed following the 1956 Act was to be money for roads and roads only. 90% uh, of that cost was picked up by the federal government, 10% by the states. And cities that didn't want these projects just didn't get the money. It wasn't like you could get the money and say, well, we'll put it into buses and and so on. Thereafter, there was a long struggle. Why don't we let cities have some discretion over how this money is spent? The pro-roads, pro-automobile industry people would say, no, this money came from gasoline taxes, so it should go to roads only. By the 70s, that argument was starting to change. You know, OPEC oil embargo was part of this in 73. E ecology movement was part of it. To some degree, the civil rights movement was part of it. And by 74, you could, you could, as a city, take some of that money and put it into transit, but not very much. But what this set us up for is the present, where we still have a default assumption that money for uh, federal transportation projects in cities is highway money. A certain fraction is set aside for transit, mostly for capital projects, not, not to operate them. And to this day, we, we define congestion primarily as insufficient road capacity rather than a misallocation of resources. Um, you know, when when you are committed to providing a congestion-free driving experience for the least spatially efficient mode of transportation ever invented, this is what you get. You know, you 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 find yourself 
digging a hole and just digging deeper into the hole, the harder you dig. I'm talking with Peter Norton, Associate Professor of History at the University of Virginia, author of Fighting Traffic and a forthcoming book, Autonorama. So I wanted to ask about this new book coming out because it challenges the idea of autonomous vehicles as a solution to our problems. And the book's description has a quote that says, we are once again being sold car dependency in the guise of mobility. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. um, So you can't have missed, I'm sure, you know, your listeners can't have missed the, the selling of autonomous vehicles as the future of transportation at least a big part of the future and maybe the whole thing that they are going to, these robotic cars are going to deliver us from congestion. They'll be more sustainable somehow and they'll be above all safer is how they've been sold. Now, um, these are this is a high-tech car solution uh, that we've been getting sold now for about 85 years. If you go back to 1939, General Motors was showing us a future. At that time, it was the city of 1960, which was going to be a congestion-free, crash-free paradise. And it didn't actually have to work because it was just a model. It didn't have to be realistic, but it did have to be credible. And to make it credible, the message was technology is going to make it possible. And now the version that's being sold is based on machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, sensors, LIDAR, radar, um, optical sensors, um, networked systems. All of these things are supposed to make car dependency work as if the deficiency has been technology. But really, the deficiency has been car dependency. In other words, it's not that we don't have enough technology to make car dependency finally work. It's that car dependency itself doesn't make sense. It's not like we can't have cars. We, we, I think cars could be wonderfully useful tools in a bigger tool set. But we, we need to similarly realize that car dependency is an option. It was never a good option, and technology can't make it a good option. And my fear is that it's distracting us from the wonderful things we can do right now that are affordable, more sustainable, more feasible, more practical, more enjoyable, more healthful, more efficient. Uh, The list goes on. So I think I know your answer to this, but um, then do electric vehicles offer any solutions? Certainly from a climate perspective, they do, right? An emissions standpoint. But uh, in the car dependence world, maybe not. You know, electric vehicles are going to be essential, but we're going to have to find a way to do it where we don't need as much driving as before. Of course, all those electric vehicles would have to be charged. Right now, we have something like 20% of the U.S. power grid from renewables on a good day, and that's defining renewables pretty generously. We need to get that number higher. As far as the batteries go, there's one really... It's sort of a painful but also a practical lesson from the past. You don't have to have batteries to have an electric vehicle. Every city in America, big, medium, and and almost all the small ones as well, had electric vehicles 100 years ago with no batteries. They were called streetcars. That's an example that you can actually have electric vehicles that don't need the batteries. That would be a big plus. 
you can have electric buses that don't need batteries too if they can connect to an overhead power supply. So that's a possibility as well. I think battery-powered electric vehicles are going to be necessary too. But they'll have to be part of a mix where people can walk to destinations, cycle to destinations on a regular bike or on an e-bike, take the bus, and uh, take rail because um, those things can all serve our needs too. All the transit ones, buses and rail, are often criticized as expensive, but we have to be you know, you don't say anything about costs unless you're comparing. And compared to car dependency, which is unfathomably expensive, they're actually a pretty good deal. So I think we really do have some good choices. I hope so. <laughs> I've been speaking with Peter Norton, Associate Professor of History at the University of Virginia and author of Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City, and a forthcoming book, Atanarama. Thank you so much, Peter, for talking with us on Climate One today. It's been my pleasure, Ariana. Thank you very much. Coming up, what we can learn from other countries that do transit well. Investment in bus service really does pay dividends. If a bus is coming every 10 minutes, every five minutes during the peak or something like that, you can really sort of rely and depend on that. That's up next when Climate One continues. We move now to why we're so bad at building cost-effective, reliable public transit in America. Eric Goldwyn has explored that question through his research at the NYU Marin Institute of Urban Management. He says there's several reasons, one of which is the funding model. So oftentimes, since projects are so expensive, you need to get a lot of different people contributing money to it. So right, the federal government, uh, a local government of some sort of transit agency, so on and so forth, and sort of putting together all of that capital is just a difficult process. And the other part of it, right, is that throughout the country, so few people rely on transit. You know, in Kansas City or in Oklahoma City, where 90% of people drive or carpool to work every day, it's just a much more, a much greater lift. And so it creates a lot of opportunities um, for veto points, you know, public interference, lawsuits, uh, things of that sort, and also change of administration, right? If you sort of had a champion in the governor's office or the mayor's office, and then, you know, he or she subsequently leaves office, that also can, you know, create a number of hiccups. And we've seen that in, in a number of projects. You also say that it's how the transit projects are sold to the public. They're often sold to reduce congestion. That doesn't happen. So people say, so why did we do it? Absolutely. That's another part of it, right, is that uh, the benefits oftentimes don't sort of pan out. And so the other other part of it, right, is that oftentimes the projects are sold to fit, you know, to be at a certain budget and done on a certain date. And then oftentimes they're over budget, they're delayed in delivery, and then fewer riders than projected. So yeah, the public appetite uh, diminishes and there's less confidence in the ability to deliver on on sort of these sanguine promises. You're the co-founder of the Transit Cost Project, comparing costs of building projects in different countries. Uh, pretty interesting reading to look at the cost in Cairo and all these different places. Why is it so more, more expensive to build transit in the U.S. as opposed to other places? So uh, with, my, with my colleague, Alan Levy, we've been sort of looking at costs, right, in it's about 60 countries now, over 600 projects. One thing that we see in the States is that there's a lack of in-house capacity at transit agencies to sort of do the, the hard work of, of planning a project 
um, and sort of getting public buy-in all sort of lined up in time. Other places in the world, I'm thinking of uh, sort of Northern Italy, where we're looking at some stuff more closely, uh, projects in Spain, projects in the Nordic countries. Um, they do a lot of the design and planning work sort of in-house and sort of they then bid out to someone to construct the project at the very end, rather than sort of create a long process where you sort of announce you have interest in an idea, you bring in a bunch of consultants to sort of do the design, and then you respond to public comments, and then you have to have the consultants redesign the project, then you have to jump through a bunch of regulatory hurdles, then you finalize your design, then you have to bid it out all over again to a final sort of build contract um, and, and go from there. So there, there are a lot of steps and hurdles along the way that we have put up in front of our projects. Often in the United States, we hear it's because of regulation, environmental regulation, it's because of unions. Are those real obstacles, regulations and unions that drive up the U.S. cost? Sure. So I think some of the sort of NEPA process, which is sort of an environmental process, part of that, you know, might contribute absolutely. Um, but it's important to note, right? It's not as if in other countries they don't have environmental regulations. But, you know, costs in sort of Denmark and Stockholm and, you know, Switzerland, the costs are, you know, under control in those places. And there's there's no argument that their environment is, you know, much worse than ours or something like that. Um, on, on the labor side of things, it's we do we do see that there are issues with sort of you know hourly wages vary from from place to place no doubt um, but in our data we we do try to adjust for what we use is a, a PPP conversion to adjust for local conditions purchase price pay, uh, it's, yeah. PPP is yes. purchase price parity okay. exactly right so that you know there's some comparing across project uh, projects so like. Turkey is a country that we've looked a lot at and that, you know, they, they build things very cheaply. And it's, it's true. Their, their labor costs are, are, are much lower, even after adjusting for that, that PPP conversion. Um, but another thing that we see is that there's a lot of staffing and not just at the sort of um, labor level but at the white collar oversight level, right? So you have lots of consultants who are, you know, contracted with to sort of make sure that things are going smoothly. And, you know, when we talk to, um, you know, planners and construction workers and, and contractors in other parts of the world, they're always blown away by how many just different people are involved in these projects. Tell us about your case study of Boston's Green Line extension, where a simple light rail extension ended up with stations that cost more than 100 times the initial estimates. What can we learn from that? Right. So I think the, one of the big things that we see, and this is true um, in a number of cities in America, is that stations are very expensive when you build them to be much more than a place where someone waits for a train to come. If they have sort of elaborate plantings and they have two levels, elevators, escalators, you know, if they're if they're community building projects in addition to transit projects, they end up getting uh, sort of larded up with sort of community driven perks and things of that sort that are a little bit sort of orthogonal to what a transit project is. And, and in the case of Boston, that's absolutely what happened, right? So the initial design was essentially a weather shelter, sort of, you know, just a, a roof and then a bench and then ramps, you know, for ADA accessibility and stuff like that. And then it grew into sort of you know, bespoke, unique architecture that blends into the community and makes a real place, um, you know, native plantings, you know, to, to welcome you as you entered the station, two floors, uh, bathrooms for, you know, patrons, and then space for uh, 
MBTA staff and stuff like that. So this, a lot of things just got added on and, you know, all those added things just cost money. So a little bit of background on, on the Green Line is that it was supposed to extend one more station uh, to the North Mystic Valley Parkway. And because of the cost issues, they just couldn't afford to take it that to that next station. Are there class and racial uh, dimensions to support for public transit and who uh, rides public transit? Um, again, you know, they're sort of the New York, Boston, these are they're kind of the exception, right? But overall, is there a kind of race and clash connotation, therefore, why they don't, why those systems don't get the kind of support because they're for the underclass? Oh, I, I think that's absolutely the case. I think, you know, New York is a real outlier in that the average subway rider, I, I believe this is right, is slightly richer than the average New Yorker. Um, but the average bus rider is poorer than the average New Yorker, likely older than the average New Yorker, likely a minority, a minority likely uh, less educated, uh, you know, so all of the socio-demographic things that you sort of were alluding to, you're much more likely to find on the bus than on the subway in New York. But then, yes, absolutely, when you get out of the city of New York, it's, you know, it, it's very stark how divided, you know, bus lines are versus sort of the rest of the population in cities. And, you know, cities like Oklahoma City, where 90% of people drive or carpool to work, and maybe it's even higher now, the only people left who are to ride the bus or people who just can't afford a car. And I think that's the other problem, right? Um, car ownership is aspirational, right? Most people are sort of looking forward to the day um, that they can sort of buy a car and, and not be stranded on the bus. There's a lot of great work. Uh, I have a colleague, Nick Klein at Cornell, and he's done a lot of work on sort of just how many hoops and uh, financial hardships people will take on to own a car. And it's absolutely worth it. Even if it's like a high interest loan, it's like, it means they have more access to jobs. It means they're more likely to, you know, not get fired for being late when they go to work. They can go to medical services. They can pick up their kids, get them to school. Like all, all these things are available to you once you have access to a car in a place that has pretty much a non-existent bare bone transit system. Well, and, you know, a lot of cities don't have those transit systems, and a lot of it is really the density isn't there. A lot of this gets to land use, which I know you also study, but with single-family homes, you know, scattered across sprawling landscapes, uh, planners face, well, you know, do we build up and increase costs, or do we build out, you know? Um, so how does land planning and land use come into this um, in, in density? Yeah. So I think land use is, is a big part of this. Um, I would push back slightly on the sort of density determinism. Uh, I think there are examples of, I'm thinking of sort of suburban Toronto, where they, they, they run very frequent bus service in, you know, single family neighborhoods, not sort of like one acre lots. And they've found that, you know, investment in bus service really does pay dividends and people take it into downtown, right? Because parking is is hard to come by when you get downtown. And you can sort of, if a bus is coming every 10 minutes, every five minutes during the peak or something like that, you can really sort of rely and depend on that. It's not sort of a, a burden. There's so many places in this country where, um, you know, bus service stops at 6 p.m., doesn't run on the weekend. Um, it runs once an hour. Uh, you know, like that's not a serious transit system. Like that's always going to be sort of a struggle and an uphill battle. But to, to get to your point, one thing that is is mind boggling is when you look at some of these new light, light rail pro projects in, you know, in Texas or in California, um, cruising by parking lots, you know, and it's like that 
is so frustrating. Like take advantage of the transit infrastructure investment and yeah, rethink your land use. Allow for some density, allow, allow for some building along that corridor so you have sort of a natural population to draw from. Eric Goldwyn is assistant professor at the NYU Marin Institute of Urban Management and co-founder of the Transit Cost Project. Uh, let's talk about Los Angeles. You talk, you kind of push back on the density determinism. Los Angeles is very interesting to me as the pinnacle of the car culture. Yet in 1990, it embarked on a light rail system that now carries about 150,000 riders a day. What did LA do right, and what can be learned from LA, which is very car car centric, and yet um, the the light rail in L.A., it goes to the ocean, it's going to the airport, it goes up into the, uh, you know, Burbank and the San Fernando Valley. It, it's it's getting around. I think the biggest thing that they've done is they've sort of just made the commitment that they're going to build, you know, a lot of transit. And that's something that isn't really the case in most American cities. You know, Seattle's another city that has done some interesting things with its buses, and it's also expanding its light rail uh, offerings and things of that sort. Previous mayors, um, Antonio Villaraigosa was, you know, talked about the subway to the sea. That was uh, constantly. I mean, Los Angeles, they've, they've done some things right, absolutely. Um, but, you know, they still make, you know, certain fatal flaws in the design of stuff. You know, they, I think running uh, light rail in the medians of highways and things of that sort, which you see in a lot of American cities, it goes to your point about land use, just sort of like, it's a, you know, a stultifying environment that you're building through. How do people access it? Um, it creates a lot of problems. Yeah, it goes a lot of places, but it doesn't necessarily go faster than the, the traffic. We've seen a big shift to more remote work during the pandemic. And a recent article in the New York Times made the point that if just a small sustained change in the number of people traveling at rush hour could dramatically reduce the need to build out capacity for those peak times. So what do you think about flattening the curve of transit demand? And would that really help? The, the lesson I would take away from that is what I'd like to see is more of a reduction, a de-emphasis on sort of peak service and a movement to sort of just all day service, right? So when when I look at, if you look at a city like Rome or Mexico City and how they sort of provision transportation services, you know, I'm going to make this up a little bit, but starting at six in the morning, they just start running the buses, the light rail, the trams, the trolleys, the subways, whatever. Um, and then they they keep a, you know, a very healthy sort of frequency, say every five minutes, every 10 minutes um, until you know eight o'clock at night or something like that. And that way you sort of can account for it, it draws people in who aren't necessarily commuting for work, right? So like that peak demand issue that we that you were talking alluding to, because you've smoothed that out, but you do still create the opportunity that people can depend on and rely on transit at any time of day. And I think that's sort of the the key. Yeah, and post COVID, people want to want to travel when it's less crowded. Um, Congress is weighing some huge measures dealing with infrastructure and transportation this summer. What priorities do you hope make it into those bills, and what what can make the shift from roads to transit as we think about climate? Right. Well, I think the big thing is you know you want to see sort of an inversion in where the dollars are going. Uh, you know, transit to roads. I, one of the things that's most striking when I look. Uh, across the landscape of international cities is a city like Milan, you know, instead of 20% of the money going to roads, I mean, 20% of the money going to transit and 80% going to roads, it's the opposite. It's 80% going to transit, 20% going to roads. And I think that is just unfathomable in any American context. But I think, you know, that's really the direction we need to be going in because as sort of we see if you invest in roads, you make it easier to drive, you make you know it faster, all that kind of stuff, eventually people are just going to say, you know what, 
it's faster to drive than to get on this bus or the subway. I'm going to do that because I have the ability to afford a car and, and so on and so forth. And in, in America, that really is the case. You know, there, there's, it's not exactly one car per person in America, but it, it's pretty close. Um, and so unless you make the car sort of less desirable or less effective at getting people where they need to go than transit, transit's never really going to win that battle. Transit really needs to be sort of that anywhere to anywhere transportation service. Uh, and as long as it's it's not. It just the car is, is is a way better solution to that transportation problem. Eric Goldwyn from the NYU Marin Institute of Urban Management. Thanks for coming on Climate One. Thank you very much. Some U.S. cities are getting serious about their transit systems. Climate One contributor Aubrey Calloway brings us the view from Houston, where transportation changes are underway. I'm here in Central Houston at a metro rail stop in the Texas Medical Center. It's 5 p.m., and doctors, nurses, and hospital staff are streaming onto the platform to wait for the next train. After a short trip on the light rail, we arrive at the transit center. As I'm waiting for an express bus to the southwestern edge of Houston, I meet Dia, a hospital employee. Do you take this route every single day? No, I just started taking it. Yeah, because my car is in the shop, but I used to before. Riding transit has added an extra 15 minutes to Dia's normal commute, but she doesn't mind. Yeah, it's a good experience. And, you know, with this one, I like that it takes me straight to the parking ride. Yeah, so I like that. The bus arrives, and it's a straight shot to the Missouri City Park and Ride, where the other passengers spill out of the bus and into their own waiting vehicles. They'll head towards any number of Houston's prosperous, fast-growing suburbs. Because for many users, the city's transit still works best when combined with a car. Houston is huge, covering an area half the size of Rhode Island. And for decades, the city has been built for and around the car. 12-lane highways, sprawling growth, and land use regulations that prioritize free parking over sidewalks and bike lanes have defined the way Houstonians move and live. That began to change in 2015, when Houston Metro replaced its old bus system with a brand new grid of routes overnight. Improvements like expanded light rail and more frequent bus stops made transit a more convenient option for residents of largely white and wealthy neighborhoods within the city's core. In contrast, only one in three affordable Houston dwellings is located near high-quality transportation. Combined with a lack of job opportunities in these neighborhoods, many low-income communities, especially immigrant and communities of color, have been left disconnected and car-dependent. And now, Houston has arrived at one of the most significant turning points in its mobility infrastructure in decades. Metro is ready to move you into the future at the speed of life. In November 2019, Houston voters passed a $7.5 billion bond referendum to support the Metro Next Moving Forward plan. The package includes major upgrades to the transit system, including the city's first bus rapid transit line. Now to new developments in a controversial construction project, a plan to move I-45 Most recently, the U.S. Department of Transportation and Harris County officials halted a $9 billion state plan to rebuild and widen Highway I-45, a huge thoroughfare in the city's core. Local activists have opposed the expansion for years over concerns about increased air pollution and the displacement of Black and Latino neighborhoods. 
The future of the I-45 expansion is still unclear, and it remains to be seen whether Metro Next transit upgrades will truly address mobility inequities in the city. For Climate One, I'm Aubrey Calloway in Houston. Coming up, how the pandemic ushered in a new way of thinking about urban design. There's been a bit of a, a re-envisioning of what a street is even for, where maybe previously people thought about a street as a place to move cars. And now they're starting to think about streets as places to gather with their neighbors or teach their child how to ride a bike um, or simply just take a walk at the end of the day. That's up next when Climate One continues. The transit system in the nation's capital is gearing up as commuters trickle back to the office. But Climate One contributor Aman Azar reports that scooters, bicycles, and mopeds have attracted a new following as concerns persist over Metro riders' safety and health. Francis Shield is a longtime DC Metro rider. For years, he would pour coffee into a travel mug and make an early morning run for the Metro to get to work. COVID changed all that. Francis bought himself an electric scooter to avoid Metro. Now, he carries it to the subway as Metro becomes a safe option again. I enjoy riding subway, if you will, the Metro. Um, and I also enjoy taking my scooter on it and going on from the place that I get off and to my next destination. But for Taylor Collins, a young restaurant manager, Metro is a waste of time. Uh, well, right now it's a 14 minute wait for the next train, but the scooter's right here. Uh, it's about a 10 minute scoot to work for, for me. So it just makes sense. During the pandemic, DC's Transit Authority drastically reduced its service because of a whopping 90% drop in riders. That resulted in a massive revenue shortfall. Federal coronavirus relief funds last year included $14 billion for transit agencies to stave off some of the budgetary pressures in places like DC, Boston, and New York. But the pandemic is not the only reason commuters have found other ways to get around. DC specifically, has suffered from issues related to poor management uh, and maintenance of the metro rail system that resulted in a series of crashes. That's Yona Freemark, Senior Research Associate in Metropolitan Housing and Communities at the Urban Institute. He says those crashes made riders feel unsafe. But they also forced the transit agency to engage in a series of expensive and long-lasting repairs on the existing lines, which have reduced the quality of service over time. In an April meeting of DC Metro officials, Lynn Barisok, Senior Vice President of Customer Service, said peak ridership is unlikely to recover while work schedules remain in flux. We know that our pre-pandemic customers are not traveling to work as often as they did because they are telecommuting. And we learned that even though their confidence in Metro remains high, those who do journey to work are driving more often. Urban Institute's Yona Freemark says ride-hailing services have also caused a decline in transit numbers in recent years. Whether that will continue to be true in the future is unclear. But commuters like Taylor and Francis, who have embraced scooters and bikes as alternatives for short inner-city travel, don't necessarily see them in a competition with the Metro Transit Service. If you live further from a Metro than I live, then you would need a scooter to get to the Metro. Um, maybe some people would use one of these options and not use mass transit, but just as often people see it as a supplement to it. Um, so it's both, it's a competition and a compliment. 
As DC commuters adjust to a post-pandemic work routine, multimodal transit may become the new normal. For Climate One in Washington, D.C., I'm Aman Azar. Amanda Eakin is Director of Transportation for the Bloomberg American Cities Climate Challenge at the Natural Resources Defense Council, where she has been working to help cities decarbonize their transportation. She says in many places, the pandemic has altered the thinking about what streets are for, a place to walk, dine out, and hear music, instead of strictly to move cars. Some cities have gone even further. You know, one of the things we've been so thrilled to see and to support um, is cities stepping up and creating their own sources of revenue to fund their transit systems. Two of our cities during a historic pandemic went to the ballot, uh, Cincinnati and San Antonio. And despite shelter in place orders and all kinds of economic uncertainty, the voters in those two cities chose to tax themselves to pay for their transit systems. So another thing we've been happy to see is the federal government really stepping up, especially in those emergency response measures, to recognize that transit is an essential service in our cities and to fund it uh, with those emergency relief packages. So I believe it's over $60 billion that across the various rescue packages has come to transit agencies. Um, and the recognition that transit is an essential service, I think, is an important um, outcome of the pandemic. One of the key obstacles to a renewed push for public transit in America is the backlog of maintenance and operational funding many systems suffer from. Uh, will President Biden's infrastructure bill help address that if it passes? Both the Biden infrastructure package and also the transportation reauthorization bill, which is also due up for reauthorization by the end of September um, of this year, are phenomenal opportunities for the federal government to make big investments in transit, both in infrastructure and also in the operations of those systems. One of the things that we're calling for as NRDC is parity. Traditionally, the federal government through the transportation reauthorization bill has put about 80% of the money towards roads and highways and only a fixed 20% to transit. Uh, we're calling for a leveling of that playing field where 50% of the federal transportation infrastructure bill would go to transit with a key focus on operations and maintenance that's so critical to making our systems thrive. Pretty important, but unsexy stuff. You know, there's a lot of the incentives uh, for local politicians are to, uh, you know, cut ribbons on new roads because, you know, cranky voters and traffic, you know, are, are not a good things or potholes, right? Classic, um, uh, you know, axiom of local politics. So how are you going to go against sort of that, that convention that politicians like to say, we're going to expand the road and, you know, open it up for you if you're sitting in traffic and angry about it? You know, one of the wonderful things we've seen through working with these 25 cities in the Bloomberg Philanthropies American Cities Climate Challenge um, is that this was a two-year program. And so we really needed to think about changes cities could make in a short amount of time that would make a big difference. And one thing we saw after city after city was that cities were choosing to put their infrastructure, what they control, which is the streets, and put that towards moving sustainable transportation choices. So whether it was Minneapolis, Honolulu, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Denver, Colorado, cities rolled out the red carpet for transit by laying down the red paint and creating bus-only lanes. It doesn't sound very sexy. It doesn't sound, um, you know, all that much of a ribbon cutting, but these 
programs are so popular because the bus riders get to fly down the street and get out of that traffic. We heard from Mayor Fry in Minneapolis, and he talked about one corridor called Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis. And he said his staff had told him that the buses were about 2 to 3% of the vehicles on that street, but they were moving 49% of the people on that street. And he said when they even just put up a temporary set of cones for one day just to let the bus not have to sit in traffic, the transit riders were literally cheering out the window because they didn't have to sit stuck in traffic anymore. And their experience as transit riders was elevated. There's one such uh, bus rapid transit lane in San Francisco under construction uh, that was held up by litigation from environmentalists who were upset by some trees taken out. Um, So therefore, congestion still continued. So what do you say to environmentalists that sometimes can get in the way of good things because they're looking at something, you know, a few trees? Um, Whether it's 115 degree weather in Portland, in Seattle, or historic droughts or wildfires, Uh, We really need to look at this challenge of of climate change and where the problem is coming from. And something I think a lot of people in this country don't know is that transportation is now the leading source of climate pollution in the U.S. And we need to tackle that by creating sustainable travel choices. The good news is that people are demanding those travel choices in cities. City after city around the country have gone to the ballot box and their voters are coming back and saying, yes, we want more transit. We're willing to tax ourselves to pay for those transit choices. So seeing cities around the country then put their infrastructure, their streets to work, making sort of surface subways, uh, making those bus rapid transit projects happen uh, is exactly the kind of thing we need to see. Bus rapid transit has been kind of in vogue in transportation circles for a number of years, uh, but it has lower upfront costs. But some experts say they have higher operating costs over the life cycle. Uh, You don't have to cut up streets and put in light rail, for example, which is very expensive and timely. But are bus rapid transit lanes as good as they're made out to be? We put in place in San Francisco um, something called the Temporary Emergency Transit Lanes Program um, over the last few months. And the numbers really speak for themselves. Uh, We have double-digit increases in the speed and the frequency um, of these transit lines all across the city. Uh, And they're very popular. Transit riders, it turns out, uh, love not having to sit in traffic. Uh, They're also very, very cost-effective. We're talking about some paint on the street, in some cases just a couple of posts demarcating the space for transit uh, so they can happen quickly and they're cost-effective. Uh, and they're very, very popular. Amanda Eakin is Director of Transportation for the Bloomberg American Cities Climate Challenge at the Natural Resources Defense Council. You've worked with 25 cities around the country the last couple of years. You mentioned you know, voters willingly taxing themselves for transit. What are some of the other innovations you've seen in those 25 cities? So when the, when the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, what was really remarkable to see was hundreds of mayors around the country, they stood up and they said, we are still in. We want to signal to the rest of the world that the U.S. is still in on the Paris Climate Agreement. So the Bloomberg Philanthropies American Cities Climate Challenge was really designed to support those mayors to make good on those pledges and to meet their own version of the Paris Climate Agreement. Some of the uh, really interesting observations we've had is that each one of those 25 cities, it's taking its own unique pathway to decarbonize uh, their their city systems. One uh, example I want to highlight is the city of St. Paul, Minnesota. 
but a really interesting vision for bringing electric vehicles, which are some of the cleanest transportation choices available, within reach, both uh, physically, but also um, economically to their whole population. So they're launching an electric vehicle car share program. And the idea is there will be pods and charging infrastructure all over the city so that every household has access to a clean way of getting around uh, without necessarily the cost or need to own that vehicle. There are a couple of policies passed in the city of St. Louis around the idea of EV readiness or kind of getting ready for an electrified future. So they actually passed three separate bills uh, uh, mandating the sort of charging infrastructure in different kinds of buildings in the future so that those, so the charging infrastructure is available uh, when those EVs come online. So EVs are wonderful. They're clean. I've been driving one for 10 years. I don't pay any gasoline tax. I don't go to gas stations, nor do other EV riders. Um, so what happens when EVs grow and there's reduced revenue for roads and, and bridges that are funded by gasoline taxes? We have to look at how that, um, that gas tax has been spent. <laughs> and a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of that gas tax has gone towards uh, creating roads and highways that if we look historically, um, have disproportionately harmed communities of color um, and lower income communities. Uh, and city after city, you can see neighborhoods destroyed, neighborhoods literally bisected by those roads and freeways. Uh, and amidst the uh, national conversation we're having around racial justice in this country, it is a time to pause and reconsider whether the best thing we can do for our cities is to build freeways right through them or, or perhaps we need to think about a different approach. In the American Jobs Plan, there is a $20 billion program set aside for actually reconnecting communities. This is directly reckoning with the legacy of the transportation system uh, by, by, in some cases, uh, reconnecting those communities, in some cases, removing, replacing, covering those freeways um, to recognize that so many communities, especially communities of color, were divided by those freeways. Uh, and that's not the vision we have for the future of our cities. One of the features of COVID was a boom in cycling. Uh, is that going to continue after COVID or is that going to go back to the, the way it was? And, and will that be one of the lasting changes we see coming out of COVID is more uh, bike friendly cities and more use of biking? Here, I would want to talk about um, the city of San Jose, California. Over the last few years, they've created 400 miles um, of bike lanes recognizing they've got great weather, they've got the right topography, they've actually got a lot of street space to work with um, in order to put in those safe, protective facilities. So that's part of their vision um, is to create that network. If it's safe, again, we've seen this again and again, if it's safe, if it's comfortable, if it's convenient, people will bike. The challenge for cities is creating those networks, those protected networks citywide. Because when you're driving along on a freeway, you don't just expect, expect the freeway to stop and say, freeway end, good luck. Um, but we see that all over the place as cyclists. You'll be riding around in a nice facility, and then it just ends. And when, when you have that kind of experience, it's, it's unsettling. It doesn't invite people back. So one of the slow streets, uh, one of the exciting things about the slow streets is that in a very short order, by throwing up some cones, some sawhorses, zero capital infrastructure, we've really transformed the way streets feel. Even beyond just a, a painted bike lane, which at one point was considered um, a, an important move, 
even more comfortable for all ages and abilities than a painted bike lane um, are these slow streets where fundamentally the cars are just moving more slowly and there are more spaces for people. I think if we can build out networks, citywide networks of these slow streets, we could really see a very significant uptick in the number of people choosing to walk and bike for their daily needs. And we'd be remiss in talking about uh, transportation choices if we didn't touch on ride-hailing services, which were initially billed and sold as reducing car ownership, et cetera. But we know from studies in San Francisco and elsewhere, they actually increase congestion because people drive an hour or two into a city and then circulate around. Um, so how do ride-hailing apps fit into this? I think that there's the promise of ride hailing and then there's the reality of ride hailing. Yeah, big difference, yeah. Um, I think that the promise was everyone's going to shift to, you know, just using a vehicle when they need it and they're going to, you know, we're going to move beyond car ownership. Um, and that's not really what we've seen on the ground in cities. Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of replacement of transit and walking and biking trips with with these ride hailing trips, um, as opposed to kind of the greater vision. I do still think it's important to think about that, that, that promise or that, that premise of sort of mobility as a service, as opposed to the need for car ownership. There's something really important there where we know the average car sits around unused about 95% of its life. So we know there's something there. Um, I just don't think we've quite gotten to the model where, where it's easy enough for someone to get a vehicle when they need it for whatever purpose um, that they can choose to live without owning a car. But I, I do think that's the future. As we wrap up, what are the key questions or takeaways from the impact of COVID and how Americans get around town? One that's, that we haven't talked about yet is that um, with so much of the American workforce working from home, people have become much more intimately familiar with what's right around their home. Um, and in some cases, um, people have realized that they don't have a lot of the services that they need right near their homes. So I think there's a, a lot of an interesting conversation around land use um, and a mix of uses and how can we provide, you know, just for your daily needs within sort of a 15 or 20 minute walking radius of your home. And I think we're going to see a lot more demand for um, for bringing those kinds of amenities to neighborhoods where maybe they didn't exist before. So that that's an interesting um, reflection. Uh, I also think, again, we've seen transit emerge as an essential service that drives the economies of our cities. We've seen the federal government come in with real rescue funding for transit. And we are calling on the federal government through the upcoming transportation reauthorization bill to put 50% of the funding towards transit to recognize and reward the essential service that it is for moving people within our cities. Um, and then finally, I would say we have uh, Americans have had a chance to think about streets in a new way, maybe not as a place where their highest and best value is to move vehicles, but maybe as a place where they can gather with their neighbors, where they can go for a walk with their family or take their dog for a walk, um, and, and really as, a, as sort of an extension of their homes as a, as a part of the public realm. Amanda Eakin is Director of Transportation for the Bloomberg American Cities Climate Challenge at the Natural Resources Defense Council. She's also Vice Chair of the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. Amanda, thanks for sharing your insights on the reimagining of American streets. Nice to be with you. On this Climate One, we've been talking about the obstacles and opportunities around good public transportation in America. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. 
Talking about climate can be difficult and depressing, especially this summer. Please help us get people talking more about climate and solutions by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.